Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, hello, Sharon. How are you today? I'm fine. I guess the question is, how are you doing? I know you've had kind of a rough couple of days here. <laughs> well, you know, um, you never know what your kids are going to bring home to you. And they, uh, I guess it was them. I don't know. I got the stomach bug. And that's not a good thing to have on the last day of tax day either, you know. So I was in the office yesterday <laughs> trying to finish everything up and finalize stuff and Running back and forth down the hall and uh, had to even to take a bathroom. nap. Yeah, uh, I had to take a nap. And now that and... they've got a code on that bathroom, you can't get in there fast <laughs> enough, can you? <laughs> Let me just put it this way. It has not been a fun 24 hours. So uh, I literally have not eaten anything since Sunday. And uh, I've been drinking Gatorade and nibbling on a cracker every now and then. So... But, you uh, poor thing. Now, your CRNA wife didn't try and help you out and give you some fluids and start an IV on you and no, all no, of that? she didn't. She went to work this morning and, and left me. Left and, you, you know, fend for yourself. Fend for yourself. So. <laughs> I know. Whenever you <laughs> called me to tell me you were feeling a little bit sick, I said I started to say, well, I'll be right there. I keep forgetting that I live two hours away from you now. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh, me. Well, we got another, I think, a, a wonderful show, and I know it means uh, a lot to you. Um, and you want to introduce our guest real quick? Absolutely, I do. I would like to introduce Bob Geyer. And I met Bob, it could have been about the same time, give or take, that I met you, Jeremy, because I was rising president of NCANA whenever I met Bob. And my president was Susie Brewer out mm -hmm. of Greensboro. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we were going to have some legislative issues coming up within our state. And neither of us really knew a whole lot. And so we decided we were going to go take a class. Oh. <laughs> and it was, what, two or two days long. I believe we went to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, Bob taught this class. So I'm going to let you tell all of the things that you have kind of done in a synopsis, Bob. So take it away and tell us your perception of that whole thing <laughs> whenever we sure. come in. Sure. I don't want to overstate myself. I merely want to say as I am an attorney and I have worked with many large corporations and for the last 20 some years, I have been writing and lecturing uh, on lobbying. I just finished a six volume series of books on how to lobby the legislature uh, and give uh, seminars all over the country, training people to be better than I ever was. 
I learned lobbying. I was just given a credit card and said, well, you're a lawyer, go change the world. I go, I don't know. <laughs> and so I learned by making a lot of mistakes. And so I really devoting, especially these last few years of my life to leave a legacy, a legacy where I can teach people not only my knowledge, but the knowledge of my colleagues all over the United States on how the next generation of lobbyists can be than we ever were. So that's my current uh, challenge right now and enjoy is training people to be better than the current group of lobbyists is now. Now, Bob, the name of your organization, is it the Lobby School or? We do business as the Lobby School. The legal name is Engineering the Law. Oh, Engineering the Law. We want to engineer the law. And when I first started lobbying, I was going from state to state and making all kinds of mistakes falling on my face. And I thought to myself, you know, Robert, before you became a lawyer, you were, you were an engineer. Maybe you could start learning all these things that are going on. So after a while, I started writing down all the smart things people had to say to me. And uh, I was able to uh, create an initial draft. And then when I decided when well, I'm going to start writing books, all these things came together. But as I was telling Sharon earlier, I don't consider myself a I consider myself a transcriber because I have so many colleagues who bring these stories and anecdotes and experiences and the like. So I'm much more of an editor than I am an author because my knowledge is enough to let people benefit from a compendium of knowledge from people all over the U.S. So that's what I do. Perfect. Now, how many states did you wind up lobbying in total? Do you remember? Well, let's see. Oh, when my you were gosh. actually lobbying. I'm, I'm just going to say 20 some states lobbied in D.C. for six years, lobbied for Canada, in Canada for two years, lobbied in Finland, lobbied in Mexico, all over, all over the world, really. And I found everywhere it's all the same. Basic commonality of all of these is answering the threshold question of lobbying. And the threshold question of lobbying is this. Why would that lawmaker give me his or her vote? And until I can answer that question, I'm probably not going to get the vote. Answering mm -hmm. that threshold question, that's what lobbying is about. Very good. And, and today we're going to be talking about how to influence lawmaking by state legislatures and agencies. And, and Bob, why is this so important for our CRNA listeners out there? Well, although this statement is attributed to many different people, including Mark Twain, the statement goes like this. Why should they be interested? Because, quote, neither, neither liberty nor property is safe when the legislature is in session. Whether Edmund Burke said that or Mark Twain, I don't know, but neither liberty nor property is safe when the legislature is in session. 90% of lobbying is about taking money from one person's pocket and putting it in another person's pocket. And as a consequence, if they can take money out of your pocket and put it in their pocket, that's what they'll try to get the legislature to do. I love that. Oh my God, that's pretty that. profound. <laughs> That's right up your alley. Too. I know. I'm, I'm writing that down because that's, that's like profound to me. You were writing me. that down. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so true. So what groups influence legislation and rulemaking? Talk to us about that. Starting with the premise to understand lobbying, you have to follow the money. Who's going to get money or who's going to lose money, hmm. whether it is in a legislative proceeding or it is an administrative proceeding. And so the cast of characters changes throughout the process. Soon as someone gets what they want in a bill or an administrative rule, they very well may drop off to observer status rather than high participant status. But when it's all said and done at the very end, it's all about who's gonna get the most money out of this deal. That is as far as the uh, citizens and organizations participating. Lawmakers, on the other hand, they have a different set of drivers. Their different set of drivers primarily focuses on power, gaining power and getting more power. And they get power from the people. And so the lawmaker is listening to what you have to say and what your opponent has to say. And if I may say to your listeners, 
Lobbying is the most honest profession in the world. Because if you lie to look one lobby any one time, you are out of the lobbying business. Hmm. They don't have the time to read your bills. Most lawmakers never read the bills they're voting on. They don't have the technical understanding to know what these words even mean. What they do is they listen to Jeremy, who they know is a very straight up guy. He knows the rule of lobbying, scrupulous honesty. And then they listen to you, Sharon, say she knows the rule of scrupulous honesty. So I have one straight shooter says this, another straight shooter says that, and I balance that as a lawmaker to think, how do I get the most out of this? Do I give it to Sharon? Do I give it to Jeremy? Do I split the difference? So everything is going on a constant calculus of either power in the form of money or power in the form of position. It's all a big power allocation. Wow. I've never heard it broken down. In, no, I haven't either. I mean, that. I, I, I don't remember it like that, but that's exactly right. But, you know, that's that engineering brain you have yeah. that's functioning there. So basically what I'm hearing is there are two competing goals and somehow you've got to marry those together to get what you want. The okay. goals of, that you have and the goals that the legislator has. Yes. And but keep in mind, in the end, the only goal that matters is the legislator's goal. That lawmaker, he has no duty to justify his vote at all. He has as much responsibility to prove why he voted the way he voted as when you go into the polling booth and you pull a lever. Who are you accountable to? Nobody. Who is he accountable to? Nobody. As a matter of law, he may be accountable to voters, but as far as why he votes the way he does, he or she is unaccountable. And because there is that unaccountability in the voting process, the lawmaker is constantly calculating his or her benefits. And one of the greatest benefits a lawmaker will be driven by is the scorecard. The scorecards that are put out by the Chamber of Commerce or the scorecards that are put out by uh, the, the GLAD or whomever. The lawmaker is constantly saying, I know these scorecards determine who is going to vote for me, who is going to give me money. And how much money do you think you need to give a liberal Democrat to vote conservative Republican. How much money do you need to give a conservative Republican to vote liberal Democrat? They don't. There's no way you're going to change them. So anyone who tells you that money runs this process is very underinformed. It's not money. It's power that runs the process. Getting power, keeping power, gaining more power. That's what's driving the lawmaker. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So you've got Money driving one side and power driving the other side, basically. Yes, and right. and money is a form of power. That is true. Very much. That <laughs> you is are very true. Singing to the choir right very there. Very true. Very true. It is. It is. Money isn't everything, but it does give you. It does give you power. It gives you um, opportunity, um, and that's what I've figured out in my career. So, so Bob, how do you motivate special interest groups? Do you, is that something that you do as well? You have to uh, motivate the special interest because remember lawmakers are not reading this legislation. They don't know what it says. They are voting what is their own well-being. And so the number one way that they assess well-being is consensus. And if consensus in this process, consensus propels and controversy kills, it is vastly easier to kill a bill than it is to move a bill. In some states, and I'll just pick Minnesota as an example, you'll have a 5% enactment rate. 95% of the bills going into the legislature die. And that's an extreme example, but nevertheless, that's the case. You look at a state like New York State, Every legislature, they will have between 14,000 and 17,000 bills introduced into the legislative process. How many of those bills do you think your lawmaker is going to read, presuming he or she even understands what the content of that bill is? And so this is why so much of the bill uh, lobbying process is done on a fairly shallow level. And that shallow level is measured its step by consensus. And so your number one job is to accrue as much consensus as you can from the other special interests and minimize the amount of opposition. It's a mathematical equation. Very much so. 
That's why where the engineering comes in in this. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about legislative staff. You taught me this 22 years ago whenever I sat in that office, and it was one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned. So why don't, why don't you tell our listeners about legislative staff and their importance? If anybody is going to uh, read the bill, if anybody is going to read your technical information, it's going to be staff. Now, let's not overstate the technical information. For example, I have had both congressional staff and state staffers all over the country tell me this. They bring in their glossy notebook and they have all of their press releases. They have all of the statistical data. I listen politely for 10 minutes. I open the guts of the notebook up and I throw it in the garbage can. Because the only thing they gave me that helped me do my job was that three ring binder, that notebook. Congressional staff and uh, state staff will say, we don't have enough square footage in this room to store every one of these glossy notebooks. And so as you go through this process, you'll, one of the most fundamental understandings is this. Facts don't vote. Facts don't vote. Nobody gives a blank what your facts are. They care about what are the politics, what does it mean to the career of my boss. And so when you're speaking to staff, the lawmaker doesn't have time to talk to all these staff, especially when you get into a sophisticated state like California that's every bit as complex as Congress is. How many times will you ever speak to anyone other than a 22-year-old who just got out of college, has never had a job in his or her life, and they have to determine whether you are going to continue as a professional or not? These are the people who really, the lawmaker will say to the staff person, you met with the CRNAs. What do you think about them? Don't think that staff person understands your technical. They understand this. Are you nice? Are you polite? Are you respectful? Did you make me feel good about myself? Personality in this lobbying profession. Likeability is job one. The most important thing is to be likable. Not technically complete, not technically competent, but likable. On the other hand, when you get into the administrative rulemaking, it's facts and law, facts and law. That PhD at the department doesn't care who your lawmaker is. He doesn't care who your lobbyist is. They want facts and law. So these are two completely different systems of uh, advocacy. And so you have to understand that one of the greatest mistakes that advocates make in the legislative process is to bombard the lawmakers and staff with facts. Nobody gives a blank about your facts until you go over to the over to the agency and they are facts and law and they don't care about politics. And some of your readers may, or listeners may conclude this, it's really good here. We've got all those PhDs over there. I feel really comfortable with those PhDs talking to them, but not with these lawmakers who want to just slap me on the back and tell me I'm great. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Bob, talk a little bit about agency officials. I mean, you, you touched on it there, but uh, I mean, obviously that's a much different group of individuals than the legislative staff. Sure, uh, work on this rule of thumb. The legislature enacts 10% of the body of law. The administrative agencies in the rulemaking process enact 90% of the body of law. The legislature paints in very broad strokes. The agencies paint in minutia, in tiny single, single brush, uh, uh, brushes, single. And as a consequence, 
is these these words these worlds are quite different and it's also important to remember this what the legislature gave you a regulatory agency can take away and what the legislature wouldn't give you a regulatory agency might give you and so when one understands is that 90% of the laws are being enacted by those PhDs over the department. 10% are being enacted by the farmers and the fishermen uh, and the grocery store owners and whoever else happened to get to the legislature. You realize these are two very, very different worlds. Uh, and so when one deals with the, um, with the agencies, they are smart as you are, if not smarter than you are. And they have written their own books and their own papers and their own prestigious articles. And so when you deal with the lawmakers, the number one thing is to be nice. When you deal with the agencies, the number one thing is to be precise. Nice versus precise. Wow. Oh, I like that. I need to write that down. Nice versus precise. Well, I remember there's there's a lot of Bobisms that even I remember from 22 years ago. And you taught me there is nobody unimportant in that legislative building. There is no. And, yeah. And you taught me that then. And I even knew the people who ran, uh, who ran the copy machines. Sure. I would get a copy of the budget before the legislators did many years ago. Now, of course, everything's digital, but I even knew those people because you taught me that nobody is unimportant in that building. And you're exactly right. You just have to be nice to them. And uh, we were just up in DC and I had a, a group of students with me while we were up there lobbying. And I teach them when you go in and you're talking to this 22 year old kid, Ask about them first before you just start with your brain dump on them because you need to find out what level they're starting at. And if you find out, hey, their dad's an anesthesiologist, it's a little bit different story. Or if you find out, well, my mom was a nurse or my aunt was a CRNA, their level of understanding is different and you're not wasting your time and their time. And just find out about them. Well, are you really from North Carolina? You work for a North Carolina legislator. Well, where are you really from? High Point. Oh, you are. I'm from Lexington or whatever. And you ask them about themselves before you get started, before you start regurgitating all your stuff all over them, you know. And so that seems to help. It's worked for me all these years. It's all about making a connection. And what you just said Everyone, before they lobby, should research who that lawmaker is, where he comes from, who his constituents are. You should go and see who his staff people are. Look up the staff people on LinkedIn. Look up the staff people so you know those staff people, perhaps like you do the neighbor down the street. So when you visit with them, you could say this person is a tar heel or this person, whatever it is. Okay? Mm -hmm. Remember, likability is job one in legislative lobbying. In order to be likable, you have to be able to connect. And you connect by demonstrating some authentic level of commonality. If they like you, they will want to help you. If they don't like you, they will do all that they can to destroy you. Likability is job one in legislative lobbying. Likeability is job one. Sharon, you're good at that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's, it's gotten me. It's gotten me very far. Well, let's talk about how you motivate legislators to, to vote for you um, for your cause outside of likeability. What are some other ways you might can get them on your side? Likeability inclines them to want to help you. It's not enough to get them to help you, inclines them to want to help you. The lawmaker will be inclined to you doing his or her own political calculus. Everybody in this process is constantly doing their political calculus. And for the lawmaker, his or her political calculus is this, how will it help me, this vote that I'm about to take, advance my political career? If it impacts me favorably, 
I'll probably vote your way. If it hurts me, I'll probably vote against you. But on the other hand, there is a large body of legislation that doesn't help them or hurt them. And as a consequence is you can get them to nudge a little bit in one direction or, or another. But consider a bell-shaped curve. The end of the bell-shaped curve is it hurts me. There's no way they're going to vote your way. Or it's going to hurt me politically. No way they're going to vote your way. The other shape of part side of the bell-shaped curve is, well, it's going to help me. Okay, These are going to be for sure or for not. No way. But in the body of the bell-shaped curve, that's where most of the jockeying can take place. Very few issues are black and white. Very few issues or cannot be compromised on this point or that point. They, in the end, however, will vote for those issues that help them advance their political careers. That is a general principle, their political careers. And once again, do not be confused by thinking money has much, if any, impact on this process. The reason you give money, and the reason I'm bringing money up, because so many people have this terrible misunderstanding. Oh, you buy a lawmaker's vote. That's sheer fantasy. That's media telling you that. You don't buy anybody's vote. The lawmaker is voting his or her own best interest. They are not going to vote against that which loses them votes. And as a consequence, you can offer them all the money in the world that's legal under your particular state's ethics laws. They're not going to give you a vote. You give money to keep in power the people you like or to help get rid of the people you don't like. That's all money does. It doesn't buy votes. It simply tries to get into that particular legislative seat, people who are most suitable for you. That's its purpose. Okay, Bob. So if we've got CRNAs out there, as I mentioned to you before, that are saying, you know what, this political stuff, uh, you know, it's not my thing. I don't like it. I don't want to be involved. Can I do something else? Well, you just said, you know, giving money probably is not the way to get, you know, the legislator to to do what you want to do. What else can they do as a CRNA? How can they be active in this process if they don't want to go and lobby and talk to their lawmakers and so forth? Well, the number one thing is to build a likability with that lawmaker. Well, how, how do you do that? You can write a letter to the editor. Our lawmaker is really good for our profession. Uh, and especially, it's not so much our profession because we all know this, CRNAs make more money than a lot of medical doctors make. And so people don't want, lawmakers don't want to make rich people richer. What they want to do is think they're helping everybody else for the commonality. So if you're able to say, representative, what we do is good for the district, or you participate in some activity that is good for the district. This, these kinds of do-gooding things, because you want to create shine that goes on that lawmaker that makes him or her more attractive to voters. That's the number one thing that you want to do, whether it is the letter to, to the editor. But I recommend the number one thing you can do is just spend 10, 15 minutes, go over to the lawmaker's office, smile, be nice. You've read about the staff person. You know what his or her interests are. You know who the lawmaker is. And just go over there and have your CRNA pin on and say, hi, I'm with the CRNAs and I work in the hospital and et cetera. Just be nice. You can't impact if you're invisible. You have to become visible. But the investment in becoming visible is minimal. It's simply going and smiling at the lawmaker when he or she is home in the district office and the staff person as well. Now, we are, what we do is highly technical, which can involve um, some difficulties when you're trying to talk to lawmakers and staffers. Any advice uh, regarding that? Do not information dump. They don't want to hear it. They don't understand it. But if you can say, we had a woman came in to the ER last week, and this woman was in a terrible accident. Maybe you read about it in the paper. 
Well, we were able to give her this anesthesia and this anesthesia enabled her to get through the process and she's alive today. Humanity, that's what everybody identifies with is humanity. Forget about how many milligrams or picocuries should be involved in this stuff. Talk about humanity. This is what we do for your district. And there's another thing, if you can, if you have any public access to know that the lawmaker's kid, for example, uh, has gone to the has gone to the hospital because they're in a car accident, the media, these kinds of things, uh, the bringing any of these things forward that creates a human bond, throw the technicalities out the window at the legislature, at the agency. It's another thing. They don't care if you're human or not. All they care about is what to fax and law, fax and law, fax and law. And I was lobbying this one agency staffer, and I was explaining to him how if this agency action were uh, enacted into law, it could put my company, my, my employer out of business, to which he gave me the perfect, correct answer. He said, Bob, the department doesn't get paid to keep you in business. If you have to go out of business, I guess you gotta go out of business. They wow. don't care. But over at the legislature, they care about the stuff. Be human with lawmakers. You'll have time enough to be technical with the administrative staff. That's where 90% of the laws are being enacted over there at the administrative agency. That's where you'll bring all your technical stuff up. So save it, you'll use it, but not in the legislature. Be human in the legislature and technical over at the department. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So, Bob, what advice do you have about hiring consultants? Well, I just finished a 488-page book <laughs> on that very question. How do you hire consultants? How do you manage consultants? How do you make sure that you get the maximum return on investment of your political and your financial uh, portions? And so the question becomes this, is a fundamental rule of all contractors. If you don't manage your contractor, your contractor will manage you. And not for your benefit, but for the contractor's benefit. This is as true as if you're remodeling your kitchen. <laughs> when you're remodeling your kitchen, <laughs> he cares about how much money gets paid to remodel the kitchen. He's not concerned about you as much. So if you, this is the number one thing to know about lobbyists is this. If you don't manage your lobbyist, your lobbyist will manage you. Now, that lobbyist is managing you, but he's also managing 20 or 30 other clients. Lobbyists are inherently filled with conflicts of interest between this client and that client who pays me the great amount of fees, who pays me the least amount of fees, who helps my roster of clients look better. That makes me more influential. Most lobbyists have very little political power. Their political power comes from their client base. And therefore, the client base person of the client base interest organization that makes me more influential is the one I want to satisfy. The one who is least important to my stature in the capital is our one to satisfy less. And so you have to manage your contractor the same way you manage the person who's doing the kitchen. You've got to be there. If you're not there, then you simply say, oh, okay, we'll do whatever you want, knowing knowing that just like the kitchen remodeler's got all kinds of other clients to satisfy, your contractor's got, your lobbyist has got all kinds of other clients to satisfy as well. You better be in there managing your issue because nobody cares about your issue as much as you do. Well, talking about lobbyists, there was a, a lot of discussion at our recent mid-year assembly because CRNAs are paying more attention to their contractors because there had been a few states that had had the same lobbyists for 20 
25 years. And whenever they looked back, they really hadn't gotten anything moved in, in their direction. So there's been a lot of talk about how, how you should evaluate your lobbyists. How often should you RFP for uh, a lobbyist, even if you're satisfied with one? Have you got any pointers that you can offer to our listeners uh, so they don't necessarily have time to read 466-page book? <laughs> Is it in audio format? <laughs> I would recommend in the my 488-page book, oh, on winning, for winning with, I was an engineer, you have to keep in mind, okay? It's kind of like Jeremy needs to be precise as well. Okay. Right. <laughs> it, it was two thousand. It was one hundred and seventeen thousand dollars and eighty six cents that cost you to get through Yale, right? right. <laughs> That's what he's paid for. But um, you have to invest yourself in managing your contractor. And that's why Winning with Lobbyist Professional Edition was written. It has contractual documents. It has lobbyist evaluation documents. I'm going to DC next uh, month to give a class on how do you manage your contract lobbyists as far as the fees? How do you make sure that the contract lobbyist is doing the job? How good a client are you? These are things you need to know. Your executive director needs to know how to manage your contract lobbyist. And the effort was made in creating, I think there's like seven, eight, nine appendices there. Some of them eight, 10 pages long. Some of them are quite short. But the point is you have to invest yourself to manage your contractor. If you don't manage your contractor, your contractor will manage you constantly bargaining your interests against the other 30 clients he's got as well as determining who's be what's best for who? You? The other 30 clients? No, his own self, which is normal humanity. Contractors are great. I was a contract lobbyist. I understand that. I also understand is nobody cares about you as much as you do. If you don't manage your contractor, your contractor is going to manage you. So I would suggest is that you take all of your executive directors and coach them up in how to be the manager of the contract lobbyist. You see RNAs, you can go to your district lawmakers, You, but your lobbyist should have that singular point of contact with your particular chapter of people who have read this book, who know how to manage contract lobbyists. You've got a lot of money. You've got a lot of politics invested in this. You better make sure you get the best ROI and you get the best return on investment by investing yourself. You don't leave the operating room. You have your executive director do that. Hmm. Well, good that's good information that all of that is in that book. That will be helpful for CRNAs who are in the middle of this process to have an evaluation so you don't have to start from scratch. So listeners, presidents, you hear that, you can get Bob's book and everything you'll need will be in there. And also, if I may give this, if you buy the book from me, you get a free copy of the legislative language book. Uh, it's a book on glossary of legislative concepts. And, and standard definitions thereof at the state level. But you can buy it from anybody. Amazon sells it. Everybody sells it. That's just the way it is. I mean, Jeremy could tell you, everybody sells your books. Everybody sells your books. That's right. That's right. And Bob, what is the name of the book? Winning with Lobbyist Professional Edition. Professional Edition. I wrote a reader's edition, which is the light of that book. But really, if you are going to have the contractual documents, if you're going to have the job performance evaluation documents, you really need to get the professional edition. I, I could see that a, a lot of state associations would probably need to keep that book uh, on their bookshelf and handy. So, Bob, we, we hit on this a little bit earlier, but, uh, you know, Again, I think a lot of people think that political campaign contributions can make up for the lack of involvement. Is that true? No, no, it cannot. What do political donations do? They enable you to keep in power or remove from power. That's all it does. The lawmaker will look at those, that, that dollar that comes in. And incidentally, they count every penny. I think I have a, in the Winning with Lobbyist Professional Edition, I think I have chapter 14, which goes on page after page after page of interviews with lawmakers, interviews with givers, donors, and the like. And they'll all tell you the same thing. It has no impact 
on how a lawmaker is going to vote. All money does is it enables you to keep the person in power if you like them there or re remove them if you don't like them there. That's all it does. They will not give you anything in return for your money. They may give you a hello, a slap on the back. That's about it. But they will do nothing in the legislature. Who controls that lawmaker's vote? It's controlled by the caucus. It's controlled by the party caucus. Most lawmakers have very little choice in how they vote. Most states, it's in the legislative caucus. The majority party gets into its caucus. Many states, it's behind closed doors. Media doesn't get to go there. Even staff doesn't get to go there. And in most states, your bill is passed in the legislative caucus. And what takes place on the floor is just theater. Most floor sessions, most committee meetings are just theater to ratify what the caucus has already decided. And so it's your job to understand you're not changing votes by doing this. You're just keeping a guy around you like or getting rid of a guy you don't like. Well, I have two thoughts about that. Now, we do tell CRNAs who don't want to be involved, okay, you give your money and that allows people like me to be involved, you know, because there's a 90-10 rule within most professions and you've seen other professions outside of ours, but it's usually 10% of the people who do 90% of the work. That's the norm, as, sure. Yeah. As far as even this is concerned, other people don't necessarily like it, but I don't want to give them a buy. I do think that they need to donate money so that the rest of us who love all this stuff can hand out the checks, you know, I think that's real important. And some people you're just never going to motivate to do this, even though you also taught me that politics are in everything, whether you believe it or not. When people say, I hate politics, well, we learn about politics even younger. I mean, you're lobbying when you lobby for the car keys whenever you turn 16 because you want to go out on Friday night. You are lobbying very young in life. You just don't equate it to the same as lobbying a lawmaker. If I may, giving money is not useless. I don't want to say that for a second. What I'm saying is it will not get you votes. That's what I'm saying. Remember, I tried to use the bell-shaped curve to say mm -hmm. on the left, if it hurts me, there's no way they're going to vote your way. On the right, if it doesn't hurt me, then I will. If it helps me, I'm going to vote your way. But you have a big mass in the center of legislation that they can they can fudge along, they can uh, shift a little bit, take this, take that. If it doesn't cost them politically, they'll support you if it doesn't cost them politically. But who has made the decisions on how they're going to vote? It's all been done in the caucus. But if they can, for example, arrange a meeting with their buddy down the hall who's a senator who you want to talk to, they'll help you do something like that. Just don't expect any votes from it. Expect them to help you on the margins. That's the most they're going to do. And once the caucus has made a decision, unless they have what's called a free vote, I don't know for North Carolina how many free votes that you have, but most of the time it's leadership driven how you vote. I agree. I guess this boils down to something else that uh, a realization that I've come to over the years. It's kind of like in um, the play Hamilton, you need to be in the room where it happens. And by and large, we've never had CRNAs who really uh, run for political office. And, you know, that was one of the things that I was doing at Yale was looking at uh, we were going to do a campaign school for nurses because there's never been a campaign school for nurses in this country. We need to be in the room where it happens yes, in the you, caucus rooms. And, you, you know, you, it, it made me say just a technical side. Don't expect they even let you in the caucus room. Even staff, depending upon the state, doesn't get to go to the caucus rooms. You can go. No, I mean, be the legislator. We need to run oh, for office. Oh, I see. I understand. Now, I, yes, yeah. of course, you're correct. We need to run for office because up until this past year, there's never been any CRNA in this country to serve in a state legislature. And two gals got elected in South Dakota, two CRNAs. First ones ever. You know, I ran for the state house. Um, I was the 
second nurse anesthetist in the country to ever run for state legislature. There was a gal in Kentucky and then a man in West Virginia. All three of us lost within a couple of years. But CRNAs typically have not run. And part of it is because the pay. (laughs) I mean, the pay for a state legislator in North Carolina is $12,900. Most CRNAs can't take a pay cut like that. Um, So they haven't run for office. But may I also say is being likable. If that lawmaker sees you coming and that lawmaker enjoys you, thinks you're an honorable person, a trustworthy person, you honestly have his or her best interests in mind, then that lawmaker will want to help you. And so those who cannot be elected to office, just go visit your lawmaker, build that coalition of lawmakers, let him know what CRNA even means. And as a consequence, you can have a lot more influence if you simply are likable and the lawmaker is motivated to want to help you, he or she will say, I've got to look out for my CRNAs. And wear your pin. And wear your pin. <laughs> and always the same pin. Don't change your pin because it's very confusing. Once you pick the pin, keep the same pin forever. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, Bob, as we kind of wrap it up here, is there anything you'd like to conclude on and get across to our audience? Well, I'm going to recommend this. If they would go to my website, lobbyschool.com, go to the page called Free Resources, Free Resources. And when they go to Free Resources, they are going to see a number of free documents that they can download. 27 Fundamentals of Lobbying. It takes one page. Download that 27 Fundamentals of Lobbying. And that will that will jumpstart your awareness of the entire legislative process on one page. Perfect. I think they should listen to it just to get that, Sharon. That, that's it. <laughs> I, 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 absolutely. Well, Bob, this is, has been great. And we really want to thank you for your time and um, your expertise and your knowledge. And I know that you and Sharon go back a, a long way. And you've, I think you've spoken at ANA meetings and other state association meetings and so forth. And I'm assuming if people would like to have you come speak, you're still available to do that? Yes, I would. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I spoke to South Carolina spoken to uh, a joint meeting between uh, Illinois uh, and another state for, and Sharon was at that one in, in Chicago. You spoke at that uh, where it was. Oh, yeah. So the point is that, yes, I would be pleased, but keep in mind what I really strive to do is I want people to access government, to be able to exercise their constitutional right to petition for government, petition government for a redress of grievances. And if you don't know how to petition, your grievances will never be answered. So my mission in life is to train people how to effectively petition their state legislature. And I would be pleased to help anyone who's interested in that. That's great. That is great. Thank you, Bob. And also allow me to one last comment, and that is I'm giving a seminar in Washington, D.C. from May 24th to the 26th. And the first day is how do you evaluate your contractor's job performance? The second day is how do you get a law through the legislature? And the third day is how do you get your law made into administrative rules, the other 90%. So May 24th through 26th, Washington, D.C., if they're interested, they can register online. At right. lobbyschool.com. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Well, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. And we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and you want to help us grow, Sharon, how can they do that? Well, the best way is to leave us a review, but make it positive. There's enough negativity in this world. Absolutely. Tell all your friends, share us on social media, like us, <laughs> which seems, which is important. Until next time. It's a wrap.
Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.